This episode of the Multi-Hypho podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Hey Candy, your tummy is really sore. You are not digesting food very well and sometimes you are getting indigestion and reflux and you can't even keep food down. So it's time to get back into your body and to listen to your body because I'm pretty sure your tummy is asking you to slow down. I'm pretty sure your tummy is asking you to grieve properly. And it's stopping you from standing up or walking down the street because it's just too much pain. It's too much pain. It's too much loss to go back to normal. So I really want you to listen to your tummy. I want you to listen to your body. Actually, I want black women all over the world to listen to their bodies and let that be the strongest voice of all. I think my childhood was pretty isolated, to be honest. Um, it wasn't a good childhood, really. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, we <laughs> grew up in pretty shitty public housing. Um, yeah, it's a different place, Darwin. Have you been? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a different place. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, and like... Which part of a, Darwin? You, I grew part? up in a suburb called Anula. Oh, yeah. Um, mm, yeah, which are such a great little suburb. Um, mm. But it, Darwin's a really strange, rough place, and I think about this a lot. Um, I think about the culture of Darwin and mm. the culture of a lot of the smaller maybe um, towns um, or areas with, you know, a presence of Aboriginal people. I think the the maintenance of um, white violence is really important. I think when we talk about land back in, say, places like Melbourne or Sydney, it's a lot harder to conceptualise something like that, whereas maybe places like Darwin, Broome, Perth, there is land that could be given back tomorrow. And yeah. so I think the, the maintenance of um, white supremacy and violence is really integral to the culture of those places. I want to talk to people from multiple identities, multiracial, multisexual, multi-creative folks, people who don't fit neatly into boxes or have to tick multiple boxes or have to make new boxes of their own. Multi-hyphenates, multi-hyphos. Multi-hyphenates, multi-hyphos. In this episode of Multi-Hypho, I get to share the space with Laniuk, a wonderful writer and performer of poetry and short memoir. Laniuk contributed to the book Colouring the Rainbow, Black, Queer and Trans Perspectives in 2015 and has been published online in DJ Press and the Lifted Brow 
as well as print poetry collections such as UQP Solid Air and Firefront. Laniuk received Canberra's Noted Writers' Festival's 2017 Indigenous Writers' Residency, Overland's 2018 Writers' Residency, and was shortlisted for Overland's 2018 Nakata Broby Poetry Prize. She runs poetry workshops for festivals, moderates panel discussions, and has given guest lectures at ANU and the University of Melbourne. Laniuk is currently completing her first collection of work to be published through Magabala Books, and next she shares a poem titled, In the Image of. The body of an Indigenous woman is one of the most policed bodies in the world. We've worn the bruises and broken bones from the ugliest methods of war, carried babies forced into our wombs and lost our voices from screaming when you stole them from us. We wore fake smiles on our faces to survive forced assimilation. When our babies grew and they walked into the room, you forced their heads down into submission, trained them to be slaves and dressed them in aprons. Once decorated in ceremonial scarification and ink, draped in the ocean's jewels and our animal skins, she glistened in poised tribalism when the colonizers' boats arrived. 200 years later and you've bastardized our culture, reselling it back to us as bohemian, white summertime tribal with a broad rimmed hat. You can wear our patterns and our art with the jeweled rings to match without having to wear the rolled shoulders of child abduction and land theft. The body of an indigenous woman is carved from the mountains. Weathered from the rains, she sustains your blows and still walks with eyes to the sky. The body of an Indigenous woman has been beaten, mistreated, sexualized, tokenized, forcefully sterilized to minimize our population, which leads me to believe that you are fearful of this body, built in all its glory. She is certainly something to be feared, revered. As heartfelt as her existence is, she sings the truths you do not want to hear. The presence of her skin brings echoes of our creator sliding through the sands of time. Our limbs glide in celebration of the rainbow serpent. Giant in power, we inherited its spirit. And when you see us, the cells of your bodies recognize the energies of these lands. Of course, you are scared of us. And so it became necessary and crucial to legitimize your theft and maintain your control to burden this body. Patrol this body, lock up, scrutinize, silence, demonize this body. But we are not as malleable as you've led yourself to believe. Underneath this skin resides the full extent of our wisdom, our love, our strength. You'll try to silence us, erase us, move us, displace us, but we will grow. From seed to tree, from earth to sky, we rise. We resist, we birth. We exist, we are born, and then we die. And always we rise. Hey Lenny, it's so nice to have you on here. Now, I was wondering, when did you realize you wanted to be a poet and a writer? Like, when did you feel the calling? When did that 
desire feeling just first hit you hard, hit you really hard? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, the first time it really hit me hard. I, oh. I, I, as a child, from a very young age, I was pretty into reading. I was always reading. Um, and I think I was learning how to read and was reading more than most of the kids around me. Um, and I think I was reading content that was probably beyond my, my age. Um, and I remember I read this book and I, for the life of me, for the life of me, I cannot remember what it was called. I can't remember who the writer was, but it did have a really, um, it had quite a large impact on me. And I still think about it to this day, actually. And it was a really complex narrative around race, um, around bodies, um, around um, disability and the ways that disabled people are conceptualized and treated. Um, But I remember this one scene where there are these two children um, who who have sort of built this friendship, one white, one black, and the the black child had been sort of, you know, stolen by these um, white aristocrats and was sort of being gawked at in like a sort of, you know, human zoo type situation. And the scene that really stands out for me was the way that this child was forced to bleed, was purposefully cut to see what colour his blood was. Ah. And, you know, this was after them spending a night of, like, touching his hair and, you know, like, talking about how beautiful he was and then inflicting pain on him to see how human he was. Mm. And I, I think I read that book at about 10. <laughs> and it it really has stayed with me since, I think, the way that bodies were um, interrogated at that time. And it was a conversation that was not being had around me, but the mentality was... I was immersed in that mentality yeah. of how to measure how human someone is. I remember, it's funny you said that, speaking about this, I remember how significant seeing Six Degrees of Separation was for me. Have you ever seen that movie? It's got no, Will I haven't. Smith in it. It's Will Smith. It's based on a play and it's about this, essentially it's about a street kid who pretends he's Sidney Poitier's son. And he oh, makes yeah. his way into, yeah, he makes his way into wealthy white people's hearts wow. and homes. Yeah. Wow. Two things when I watched it, and I think I was, hmm, it was uni days already. I think I watched it late. Anyway, so Will Smith's character, like, learns white culture. Mm-hmm. Learns art, learns how they talk, what they do. So he, he learns the tropes. Yeah, And then he plays it on them, but he's not, they think he's trying to get money and things, but it doesn't seem that he is. What he's trying to do is feel a part of something, feel a part of their life. It's so big. And then he's also, he's also um, a gay kid and he'd been turning tricks in the park when he Mm -hmm. met someone who, you know, brought him home that was a college boy and he sort of started learning from him. It all gets revealed in the end. But I also, something else that I thought about a lot after I'd watched it was why do men have, why don't, why do men have sex with women? 
why don't men just have sex with men and women just have sex with women? I remember that being really strong in me because he, like, turns a few guys in the show. Right. This was really about class and colour and the way white people uh, could all be tricked so easily because he was, it was exceptionalism. It was the sort of, he was handsome and he could cook them an amazing meal and he pretended Mm -hmm. that he'd mastered, you know, these foods with his dad and he told them this big story. And also the other part of it was for me constantly going who's right and who's wrong because I think in storytelling, as we know, particularly in, you know, white Australia, it's so important that we think the white person is a good person and that the white man is a superhero and he's going to come and save us all, you know, and that sort of really clear bias being written into so much around even the way Australia was settled um, and that there was a sense of, like, we're, we're here to take care of you all. Like, I can't even remember, if, it wasn't even that long ago where I'd fight with friends who now have completely different concepts of this this idea of settler culture but thought that, well, you know, would say things like, well, at least it wasn't the Chinese. And I'm just like, where is this? What's this argument, you know? Wow, yeah. What do you wow. mean? Yeah, and it's and it's written in the language. I mean, even just the fact that they consider themselves settlers, that they just gently settled like a feather falling from the sky, this passive, you know, movement and this gentle movement when it wasn't. It was strategic, violent war that continues and that war yeah. has changed shape, but the, the, the outcome is the same. You have occupation of land, of resources and ultimately require the death of Aboriginal people to stake continual claim to that land. Okay, so how do you feel about working in what is essentially like a colonised system? I mean, how do you feel about it? Is it a compromise? Yeah, it's been an interesting process, you know, starting out as a writer and um, I suppose performing and working in more, you know, I want to say like grassroots spaces um, the, the people, um, that you, that you have available to you to collaborate in those grassroots spaces, you know, people, similar politics, mentalities, you know, willing to take particular risks and, you know, just in the small amount of time that I've been writing and, you know, the, I guess the sort of like industry ladder that I'm slowly climbing, you kind of get a little bit lonelier every step of the way as you enter the industry, as you're surrounded by that money, but with that money comes an engagement with whiteness um, and, a, and you know, people who I suppose in one hand want to tokenize you but also want you to be palatable, um, feel entitled to your work in a way that, you know, means that you have to be quite cautious with you know who you trust and who you choose to engage with and yeah yeah it's an interesting balance it is and and continuing to you know seek I think seeking other people of color across the industry uh the difference between working in those environments 
just without any white people there. <laughs> so palatable uh, as a person that's come right the way through from a very assimilated start and, you know, coloured South African parents who were terrified, like many, I guess, migrant migrant folks from war and apartheid, they think that they're coming somewhere else where things are going to be better. And when I started making shows about apartheid Australia, I remember my mother being really terrified, you know, yeah. because she said, you know, she grew up with a tank aimed, you know, tank aimed at her house and followed by secret police because her grandfather, uh, my grandfather was in politics. So to come here is to keep, put your head down. Yeah. And, um, and I was like, this is so interesting because for me and my sisters, it was a lot to do with actually getting, you know, finding true solidarity and working out, you know, what the possibility of freedom was. Mm. So freedom becomes relative. Mm-hmm. Or talking to friends from Palestine in Australia who are like, how did I move from one occupied space to another? It's mm-hmm. just so, it's, it's really big. But then something like corona hits and you're very aware of the health care. Like my mother's neighbourhood in South Africa, the death toll is very high. Uh, the same sorts of people we know, you know, um, people with HIV, people with diabetes, poor folks, brown and black folks are getting hit the hardest. Yeah. And it's like, did we need this pandemic to highlight that once again, you know? Mm. Um, Black trans women in my community in LA, queer women, you know, it's just such a huge toll that's being taken. Um, So I'm not really up for a chat at a coffee shop with someone, you know, that doesn't want to um, understand the country they're in. It's so, it's so tricky, so tricky. She takes shelter in her body. She is home inside her flesh, inside her bones, inside her skin. She is curved like brown, like thick, like all things South African. She takes shelter in her mother. She is home inside her heart, inside her hope, inside her sting. She holds her close, like tight, like scarred, like all things South African. She takes shelter in her sisters. She is home inside their tongues, inside their dreams, inside their sin. They sing her true, like hot, like whole, like all things South African. She takes shelter in her heritage. She is home inside herself, inside her queen, inside her king. It maps her soul like seas, like skies, like hills, like all things South African. So Laniuk, I want to know about the poem that you read at the top of the podcast uh, why did you write it? How did it come about? And I was actually um, commissioned to write it by the Emerging Writers Festival um, to respond to a video by another Aboriginal woman called Gabby Briggs, um, mm. and the video is called Queens, spelled Q-W-E-3-N-Z, Queens. Um, and I watched the video purposefully without reading the prompt 
um, to just see what it evoked for me. And coincidentally, our, um, our meanings both aligned. Um, what Gabby had done was as a, as a dancer and as a performer, um, had looked at the, the images of, um, Aboriginal women in colonial archives and took on their, their postures and their poses and just sort of slowly moved through this sequence. Um, and in response to that, I wrote this poem conveniently or not conveniently, um, coincidentally titled in the image of. So it's so amazing how we have to go to great lengths to find places to see ourselves reflected. Uh, when you were talking about Gabby's work, it also reminded me of a South African artist that does a lot of the out, the frames of um, African women's bodies, the hot and tot bodies, the booty, the lips, the noses, and how we've, we're living in these frames and these bodies. And yeah, when that's in fashion and when that's not in fashion, who gets to say? Mm-hmm. As a young person, I found it really difficult to define myself for myself for that reason as well and find, you know, I had to go overseas to see people that look like me or my granny's body teaching a yoga class and that can be a really big, big shift and change. So let's talk about what brings you joy. Like... What's the last record you bought or who are you listening to at the moment? What am I listening to music-wise? Oh, let me look at my <laughs> Spotify. Yeah. Um, oh, do you know what? Do you know who I love? <laughs> do you know who I really love who makes me feel really good? Steflon Don. Have you listened oh, to her music? No, Steflon oh, Don. Steflon Don, 16 Shots is my jam. <laughs> I actually I actually listen to that track um, whenever I'm on my way to perform in a space that feels unsafe to me or I'm nervous Ooh. about it. If it's maybe um, quite a white space or it's a space that I'm unfamiliar with, I listen to 16 Shots by Steflon Don to get me into a real I don't give a fuck what you think kind of mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice, 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 nice. I'm actually really crushing on Megan the Stallion and it's like Oh yeah. Levels. There's levels. But I keep like mm-hmm. going, this is my girlfriend and it's so good. Yeah. Anyone else? Anyone else you're reading right now? Um, being in Wellington at the moment, I've been reading a lot of um Maori poetry um, mm. and literature and the level mm. of poetry here is just out of control. It is just, so nice. it's amazing. Um, yeah, at the moment I'm reading some work um, by a poet called Anahera um, and she's, yeah, she's incredible. Um, so it's really mm. wonderful being here and engaging um, with um, indigenous literature in a different place mm. with, mm-hmm. you know, a shared understanding of colonialism and British imperialism um, and learning a lot, I think, about, I suppose, the similarities and differences between our experiences and I guess I'm starting to theorise solidarity and what that looks like for us being neighbours and moving mm. forward what solidarity might look like. And how do you think living in multiple identities affects your intimate world? 
That's really hard. I think um, I think what I've been grappling with lately, I think that when with my childhood um, being raised in a pretty complex um, identity in a very you know, violent place like Darwin in the 90s, <laughs> you know, like mm. 90s, early 2000s, Northern Territory intervention, the discourse that I was surrounded by um, and the ways that I was categorised because I'm fair-skinned, you know, mm. the things that about me that were okay, the things about me that weren't and the mm. way that impacts the, how I navigated space um, to protect myself, you know, as a child, it's really hard. And then to move to Melbourne, you know, in my mid twenties and all of a sudden being Aboriginal is really trendy and everyone wants you to perform mm. and be Aboriginal and share your language and teach us, you know, tell us about how terrible we are as white colonizers. It's really hard to grapple with when mm. all of a sudden being Aboriginal is okay. And you want to make money off the fact that I'm Aboriginal. Yeah. But when I was a child and I needed to be nurtured and I needed, needed to be told that who I was, was okay and better than okay. Actually it's fucking yeah. excellent you know, that wasn't happening. So mm. it's a strange time, I think, to be an Aboriginal person. Yeah, it's like you're being all of a sudden so acknowledged and yet so unacknowledged almost simultaneously. And I think we're in it, I feel like a lot of that, the 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 way that Australians conceptualise Australia has really been curated and, you know, we, we have the, the history wars, the absence of Aboriginal story and narrative for, for such a long time. And the absence of Aboriginal people in the Australian story has contributed to this idea that nothing bad has ever really happened. And I think we're at a really interesting point now where, we, where Aboriginal people um, have found pathways to telling stories through literature, through the arts, through the music, and that that absence of narrative, but also the false narrative is being quite combated, you know, on, on larger and larger platforms. Absolutely. So it's a pretty exciting time um, to be an artist, to be an Aboriginal artist mm. um, and to have opportunities that my, that the generations before me really didn't. Yeah. Um, I'd moved to Melbourne when I was 25. I, I picked up this magazine and, and read these words by Paula Bella and it was the first time in my whole life that I read something written by an Aboriginal person. <laughs> I was 25, wow. you wow. know, I didn't have, and it was, you know, someone who had written a creative piece. It wasn't an essay. It wasn't a documentary about, you know, those poor Aboriginal people. It was someone explaining in their own words, their experience. And it was so meaningful to me. Mm. It was so meaningful to be, to feel seen to feel yep. understood and to feel like I could relate to someone. Mm. Um, and it wasn't a one-off interaction. It was a piece that I could read over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, I didn't have that growing up. What's it like being Aboriginal? Asks the well-meaning white Melbourne millennial. Well, I pause scrunch my eyebrows and search for a word that could possibly begin to encompass the experience of living under silent and unacknowledged colonialism. 
It's a loaded question. In this pause, my mind slides to another reality I live in, another time in a far, far away place they call Darwin. It's a balmy night in the height of the dry season and Aunty June is cruising her van up the deserted main roads. She talks with her hands and frowns, then relaxes her arms and her face softens. Auntie is a direct force with a sharp mind and open arms. My brother Jungery slightly leans his weight with every turn and I follow the sway of his body. We are aligned side by side as the van curves and turns through the creakings of crickets and the occasional call from a bush chook. Our wide eyes catch the light of the night and we peer silently into the quiet. The orange streetlights glaze over the post-cyclone Tracy houses looming over us on stilts. Auntie is speaking softly as she calmly makes her way out of the sleepy suburbs. She's telling us of our country and our people. She's sharing with us knowledge and teaching us of our totems. Every word drops effortlessly into our thirsty minds and stays behind our silent lips. Jungery and I do not speak. Auntie is teaching us culture. As we drive along the median strip covered in frangipani and palms, I occasionally spot the tall slender trees we use for smoking ceremonies. These are our sacred trees, patiently swaying, waiting for us to see them and remember them. When Sissy died, we took the branches and burnt them at her grave, then fanned the smoke over our bodies to heal us. When I walk through our sacred smoke, I feel it penetrate me. It holds my pain and my suffering tightly for a second and says, I know this is important and it hurts, but it will make you sick. Let go. And then takes that pain and carries it away with the wind. I wanted it to take Sissy's pain with it too. Junior played the didge as we all sat around her resting place and we cried. We'd left the formalities of the church with its clean, cold floors. We'd left the thick paste of makeup they'd laid over her beautiful, flawless face. The men had lowered her into the earth and the priests had left us to grieve. Now there was nothing but the dirt, the sadness and the loss. The men took off their sweat-soaked shirts and laid their hands over her, tears streaming down their faces. Us women sat next to her, dirt covering our black skirts, and we cried into our hands. We laid paper bark over her underneath the mountain of store-bought flowers and sang her to sleep. I will never forget the light in her eyes or the taste of her homemade luxor. Auntie's driving along the outskirts of Darwin City. This is Latakia country, our home and our law. She points into the darkness towards a creek bed, explaining its importance and its connection to our family. I want to lay in this country and hold it tightly against me as it has always held us. I close my eyes and listen to the water running, listening for the sound of our ancestors. When I open my eyes, I notice a Coke can laying at the base of a tree. Next to it is a plastic bag, a beer bottle, wrappers and cigarette butts. Lights are flashing in the distance as idle cranes wait for daylight to build another apartment building, another Woolworths or another shopping centre. We drive through the city and pass countless buildings and apartments infringing on our mangroves, developing over our salt water, polluting our creeks and crowding our bushlands. Yachts are parked in our fishing grounds and leak filth into our waterways. I stare up at the glistening boulevard apartments and can't find a place to look away to. Auntie describes the landscape and culture when she was a child and when her parents were children and when their parents were children and I wonder about my children. Will they see our places of dreaming? 
Or will our culture be sold back to us from museums that were built over them? Maybe Woolworths will sell us discounted books on our history and our culture. Later, I will ask Dad what qualifies a sacred site to be protected from development, and he'll shake his head. To us, daughter, all country is sacred. All the trees, all the animals, all the water. That government doesn't understand that. It feels like I'm being built on and laid over and over and over. It feels like I'm running out of air and it's hard to breathe and all I see are apartments and suits. If I look away, all I see is Sissy's face. Apartments, suits, Sissy in a coffin, apartment suits, barbed wire fences, apartment suits, smoking ceremony. We just keep burying people and burying people and burying people and they just keep building and building and building. I catch myself holding the pause for too long. I look up at the well-meaning white Melbourne millennial and mumble, it's suffocating. Multi-Hypho is hosted and created by Candy Bowers, recorded and produced by Christian Biko, supported by Linda Hurd and Art Centre Melbourne, Creative Victoria, Darabin City Council, Bob Creative and Candy B. Big love to Senari Chandrani, Jingwa Chen and Karen Bravo. Multi-Hypho, getting comfy on the intersection since 2020. That's one of my favourite stories of all time, you know that. <laughs> like, can you do that one again? I know you probably have other stuff, but I was like, I really like that one. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm so glad that you that you like it. Like, like, you gonna get the drive? Yeah, no, so nice. I was like, I definitely need to hear that right now, just that feeling and connection. So thank you very much. Well, I'm so glad that you can find that that healing and that connection and that peace. That means a lot. Thank you. It's really good.